we continue in our series from the life of Moses, Leadership Under Fire. Well, with the exodus behind them, Moses and Israel faced the daily drudgery and dangers of life in the wilderness. In a review from chapter 15, we see that the people grumble as they come upon three days of journey without any water. And when they do find the water, they discover that it's bitter, and so are the people. God points out to Moses a log, which he throws into the water, making it sweet. And so it's through the cross of Christ that our bitter hearts are made sweet by the grace of God. The people journey still further, and then they begin to grumble for their lack of food. God graciously showers upon them bread from heaven, manna, that teach them the powerful lesson that man does not live upon bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Well, tonight we come to another series of crises. The people are thirsty with nothing to drink. And so we look upon this world, a world starving, a world thirsty for truth, for freedom and deliverance. And so the people of God must learn to depend upon God to provide for their needs. And then they get hit blindsided with a surprise attack from their enemies. People in this day and age feel assaulted on every side, blindsided and struck down. The people of God must learn to depend upon God to protect them. It's nice we come to this text. Are you thirsty? What are you thirsty for? And what is it that you seek to quench your thirst in the midst of the battle? And do you wonder how will the battle be won? I believe our text gives us guidance into these questions. I invite you to follow with me as I read from Exodus chapter 17. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massah and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur 
went up, went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekites' army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, For hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Father, you have been faithful in times past to lead your people through the weary wanderings in the wilderness. And we trust that you are with us today with our fresh trials, with struggles and hardships. And we trust that your grace is sufficient for us. Remind us, renew us, and strengthen us from this reading and preaching of your word tonight. And we do ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. When was the hottest and thirstiest time in your entire life? I have some ever so fond memories of two-a-days football practice in August under the hot, blazing Texas sun growing up in spring just outside of Houston. And I can vividly remember that almost daily experience early on in the football season where we would all be lined up just comfortably inside that air-conditioned building, blowing out 70-degree cool air, loaded down with pads and helmet. And the moment you walked out that door and hit the 100% humidity, sweltering heat, it was like hitting a brick wall. It was enough to take your breath away. I can also recall other experiences. Some friends of mine in high school... Well, oftentimes we would take a trip out to Enchanted Rock, this large magma dome in the middle of nowhere, about an hour and a half west of Austin, way past the hill country. The attraction was the rock climbing, the repelling cliffs, the spelunking caves. The unattraction, of course, was the heat. In fact, in order to get a good campsite with shade, you had to compete with the ants who were also desperate to get relief from the West Texas sun. Heat, the heat of life, makes us thirsty. And we can grow grumpy when there is nothing to quench our thirst. The people of this world are dying of thirst. And there is, consequently, a reaction of grumpiness and complaining and grumbling My wife and I recount how our children, whenever hungry and thirsty, will persist. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. And that that daily need, that daily cry of crying out to a higher power to meet the need, to meet those pressing needs. Well, tonight, we face two crises in one chapter. Here it is, God is testing his people. And here it is, God is using his servant Moses to provide for his people and deliver his people. 
through extraordinary means. And Israel must learn these lessons by facing the harsh realities of life under the sun in the wilderness wanderings. Where do you turn when you're thirsty? Where do you go when you are blindsided by your enemy? Well, in both both stories, as I hope to demonstrate tonight, it is clear that we must go to the cross, where Jesus alone can quench our thirst and give us victory over our enemies. Verse 1. Notice that it says that the people move on from the wilderness of sin. What a beautiful providential irony. Israel was in a place called sin. Isn't that where we find ourselves? Stuck in the wilderness, in the drudgery, in the misery, in the wallow of our frustration with the fall. And notice next that God commands them to go on to the next place. And when they arrive there, there is no water. Once again, we find them in a crisis that's orchestrated by God. The people have a problem. But God is in control. Hurricane Rita, when it hit Houston, hit the area of Houston, the Texas and Louisiana coast back in 2005, shortly after Hurricane Katrina, hundreds of thousands of Houstonians flooded the Texas highways in a mass exodus to flee the coast and the oncoming floods. The result, predictably, was a massive traffic jam. That took hours and even days for it to be resolved. People were out of gas, stuck on the highway. The gas stations were empty. What was even worse is that people neglected to bring enough water to sustain them, not even expecting they had to be stuck in the middle of nowhere, somewhere between Houston and San Antonio or Dallas. The people had to cry out. And the Texas National Guard came to deliver them with emergency volumes of water and other recitation. When people lack necessities, they panic. Verse 2 informs us that the people quarreled with Moses. They demanded water. Moses, you brought us out into this God-forsaken place. You give us water, miracle man. Moses confronts them, asking, why are you arguing with me? Take up your complaint before God. Why do you test the Lord? Now, the people have no good answer to Moses' logic. So what do they do in verse 3? They grumble. They knew he was right. They couldn't argue with his reasoning. And so they resort to that common human brokenness of whining and complaining nevertheless. And then they returned to Moses with this plaguing question. Why did you bring us out here in the first place? The people quickly lose their vision. They lose their memory when they're under the heat of life. But then they turn vicious. And they accuse Moses of malicious intent that he intentionally has brought them out into the wilderness to die. The same Moses whom they believed and trusted in the exodus is now their worst enemy. The people want blood. It's amazing how quickly heroes turn into villains when the people are dissatisfied. 
We've seen this in recent years with the turn of many against President Bush, from his heroism at 9-11 to his neglect after Hurricane Katrina. People have godlike expectations for their leaders. And those expectations quickly degenerate from praise and adoration to spite and death wish. People have difficulty maintaining the perspective that our human leaders are nothing more than that, mere human, and that our God is our ultimate provider and protector. No government, no leader can shield us from all the brokenness and the effects of this fallen world. In verse 4, Moses is feeling the weight of the pressure of the people on his shoulders. And thankfully, he goes to the only place he can go to for refuge. Moses cries out to the Lord, exasperated, What shall I do with all these people? And not only is he confused with what to do, he is fearful for his life. The people are ready to stone him. They need someone to blame, a scapegoat. So under the prospect of mutiny, in Moses' desperation, he turns to the Lord. King David also faced a similar crisis. In his early days, when he was on the run from Saul, he and his men took up refuge with King Achish, the king of the Philistines. And then, with a feigning allegiance to him, they even equipped themselves to go up for battle against Israel. And while away from their camp, what should happen? But the Amalekites should raid and plunder their wives, their children, all of their livestock... And when David and his men return, they are struck with grief. The text says that they wept until they had no more strength to weep. Then the hearts of the men turn bitter towards David. They intend to stone him. David, at this great crisis of life, does a wise thing. He doesn't run. He doesn't try to defend himself. Rather, in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, it says that David strengthened himself... In the Lord his God. That's what a leader does. He strengthens himself in the Lord. And the Lord delivers. And they rout their raiders and restore all of the people and the plunder that they had lost. Moses cried out to the Lord. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. How about you? What do you do in the midst of crisis? If you're like me, you're tempted to do everything in your own strength, in your own wits, and practically exhaust every possible option before coming to your senses to realize, hmm, perhaps I should pray about this and seek the face of God, to humble ourselves and yield the trial to the God who put you there in the first place. It's work-related stress overwhelming you like a flood. Cry out to God. It's a relational crisis threatening the peace of your home. Strengthen yourself in the Lord. Do not contend any further in the flesh, striving in your own strength until you are exhausted. And only make the problem more complicated. Rather, trust in the Lord that he might renew your strength. 
and give you his peace. Well, the Lord responds in verse 5 with a set of instructions to Moses. He basically says, walk. Take elders with you, grab your staff, and walk, watch, and see what I will do. God asks nothing of Moses other than to trust him and obey. Notice he gives no geological map of pointing out where to dig for water. Rather, God gives gives him something better. God gives him himself. Look with me at verse 6. If you have an NIV Bible, it will translate this way. God says, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So God can provide a fire hydrant in the wilderness. That's pretty cool. The engineer in me from my college days couldn't resist but do a calculation. So if there's about 600,000 men and women, and children, and livestock. Let's say God's got to provide about 4 million gallons of water, just initially. And if we are generous with God and give him about 24 hours to provide this water, that rock is spewing out about 46 gallons every second. That's a lot of water coming very fast with lots of power. But in my little fascination with uh, this provision of miracle, we can easily overlook the important point of this verse. The NIV, unfortunately, translates a very important word, mistranslates the word by. This little particle preposition in Hebrew that comes before the word rock literally means on. Every Every other place in the Old Testament where this preposition comes before the word rock, is translated on. In the King James, in the ESV, in the NAS, all translate it on. But we like the NIV because of its readability. So here is one corrective we would add to uh, our translation here. God is not just nearby the rock. God is on the rock. God is is the rock. Moses will later call the Lord a rock. In his reflection sermons from Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, he is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. David also calls the Lord a rock in Psalm 62, verse 2. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not greatly be shaken. God commands Moses to strike the rock. And in doing so, commands him to strike God himself, who is the rock. We can only imagine the fear and trepidation coursing through Moses' veins as he raises his staff, To strike the Lord. But this was God's command. The Lord had made it clear to Abraham in a vision in the night of a smoking fire pot passing alone between two sets of torn animals in a covenant-making ceremony. God himself would assume full responsibility for the punishment due the people for their sin and rebellion. God, God is the rock. 
And I believe that this explanation gives us the best understanding from Numbers chapter 20. When we learn in another situation of another crisis of water shortage, when God punishes Moses for striking the rock, after God had commanded him to merely speak to the rock, Moses was angry and he struck the rock presumptuously in order to teach Israel a lesson. But in doing so, he showed contempt for the holiness of God and for his punishment. Moses was forbidden entrance into the promised land. Israel deserved punishment for their grumbling, quarreling, and for their death threats against Moses. But God took the blow. God kept his promise to Abraham. God takes the punishment for his people. You see, it's not Israel. It's rather God who is stuck between the rock and the hard place. But this solution was only temporary. God would need to provide a permanent fix in order to dwell with a rebellious people forever. And so God would provide a perfect sacrifice in the person of his own son, our Lord Jesus, who would be a substitute, a sacrificial lamb to die in our place. It's Jesus who took the blow we deserved. It's Jesus who suffered between the rock and the hard place of our swollen, sinful hearts. It's also Jesus who invites the thirsty to come to drink all those who are weary from the wilderness wanderings. Isaiah 55, verse 1 says it this way Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. We come to buy empty handed. God offers it to us free of charge. But God does not shortchange us on his offer. Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, everyone who drinks this physical water will become thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Are you thirsty? Come and drink. Why drink from the wells of the world that run dry. It's like drinking salt water. That only makes you thirstier. Quest for financial security. Seeking peace, affluence, and comfort in this life. A pain-free, risk-free life of perfect health. All of these goals are broken cisterns. None of them can quench our desire. Come. And be satisfied and drink from the Lord and Savior who loved you and gave himself for you. Well, our chapter is not over and neither are the crises. Notice how the next crisis just comes right on the heels of the first one. That's just how life is. They just keep coming in an onslaught. In verse 8, the Amalekites attack unexpectedly. Now, Amalek was likely the grandson of Esau, and he would become a bitter enemy to Israel. In fact, God would command King Saul later to strike down and annihilate the Amalekites. 
And when Saul fails to be faithful, he forfeits his kingdom, and the kingship is passed on to King David. On verses 8 and 9, Moses acts. He sends Joshua to fight, but Moses is not going. He has a destination up to the hill. Moses has no sword. It's Joshua who is the warrior, but what Moses has is a staff, and with that staff, he climbs the hill to do what he can do, to intercede and petition before the Lord. Now, this is Israel's first battle. God and Joshua have the responsibility to get the people battle ready for Canaan. But this is not Moses' first battle. He has been here before, and he is ready. In verse 11, Moses tackles the hill, and he wisely takes with him two companions, Aaron and Hur. He's been here before. He knows he needs help. And as he lifts up his hands, he engages in a long session of worship and petition. And notice that the text says that as he held up his hands, as long as his hands were up, Israel was winning. But when he lowered his hands in fatigue, Israel began to lose ground. I remember one of the training drills in high school football was on on rainy days, they would put us inside in the gym, backs against the wall, in the squatting, sitting position with our feet firmly on the ground, and we would have to hold count. And the coaches would just mercilessly count as the lactic acid was building up in our legs until we were the point of collapsing. The difficulty of holding a position over a long duration of time can be a daunting task. And so, it's understandable that Moses grows weary and lowers his hands, but he has Aaron and Hur there to help him, to prop up his arms. And though this story is a bit odd, the point is very clear. The battle was not won by Israel's might. It was not won by Joshua's strategy, nor any other factor of the flesh. The battle was not even won in the valley at all. The battle was won on the hill. Three feeble old men doing what seemed foolish in the eyes of the world. If only Amalek knew that they had to just take out these three octogenarians on top of the hill, the result might have been different. But the world doesn't get it. They continue to get caught up in the Lord's trap because the battle is the Lord's. Many of us are called to the trenches. Other of us are called to take the hill. One of God's most dangerous weapons are little, feeble, praying saints who are faithful to go before the Lord. If your health or your age limits your ability to serve in the church, invest yourself to pray. Turn off the TV and pray. Give yourself 10 minutes a day and grow from there to pray. Discipline yourself to become a warrior that you can engage yourself and equip others to fight the battle in the valley. We can just imagine Joshua down in the valley struggling, glancing occasionally up at Moses, beginning to realize that Moses' hands were determining the outcome of the battle. Crying at the top of his lungs, Keep those hands up, Moses! 
The people in the valley depend on you. The missionaries in the field depend on you. Your children and grandchildren are depending upon you. Your pastors, church staff, other laborers are depending upon you. Are you dependable as a prayer warrior to go before the Lord on the hill? The battle is not won in the valley. The battle is won on the hill. It's not in the trenches that eternal matters are determined. Rather, it's on our knees, wrestling with God in dark and quiet places. Paul writes in Ephesians 6, that for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Paul wraps up his entire teaching on spiritual warfare with a call to pray. Does God need a surprise attack in your life to get you to pray? Are you wrestling and striving so hard in the trenches that you fail to take time to go up to the hill to pray? Are you spending your battles, fighting so much in the flesh that you're exhausted? Withdraw from the battle. Take the hill. Spend time with God in worship and prayer to equip yourself to return to the battle down in the valley. Moses foreshadows for us another mediator, one who would intercede for us in taking the death blow of God. Jesus took up the cross, carried it up a hill, stretched out his arms, and died the gruesome death of crucifixion. But it was more than nails that kept his arms up that day. The love of the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit equipped him to pay our debt. But his outstretched arms did not end on the cross. Christ continues in heaven at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. Romans chapter 8 reminds us that we often don't know what to pray for. But the Lord Jesus Our high priest understands the groans of our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And he strengthens us for the battle back down in the valley. Joshua and Israel do prevail over their enemies. We can only imagine how the exhausted warriors were commending one another and high-fiving after the victory was won, commending one another for a battle well fought. And then they realized afterwards that the battle was won not by them, but by their meek leader, who humbly climbed a hill that day to pray on their behalf. I believe we'll see something similar when we get to heaven, to realize where the battle was won. But as you continue to fight in the valley below, lift your eyes up to the hills, and in all the victories give glory and honor to our Lord Jesus Christ. When facing the grand climax of his life purpose, 
our Lord Jesus grew weary in the garden. Having asked the help of his disciples, they failed him in propping up his hands in a late-night prayer vigil. Jesus wrestled alone with the temptation of passing the cup that would quench the wrath of God upon his people. Jesus prevailed over the temptation, having strengthened himself in his God and Father. Jesus fulfilled his role as mediator, but he continues for us today as our intercessor at the right hand of the Father. Know that Jesus does not grow weary in praying for you. When you are thirsty, go to him who took the blow for you, that he might give you eternal streams of living water. And when you grow weary in the battle, lift up your eyes to the hills, and from there your help will come. Let us pray.